I'm Chris Runge, and this is Study Hall. Welcome to Study Hall, a podcast dedicated to getting a little bit smarter about advertising. What's up, Study Haulers? Welcome to Episode 3, where we go through the second part of Tim Wu's amazing book, The Attention Merchants. Now, let's just quickly recap, cast your mind back to Episode 2, if you listened to it. If you did, thank you. Um, advertising was in rough shape. Right In this cycle of advertising success followed by reaction and revulsion, we had kind of seen this amazing golden age in the 20s where everybody thought advertising was uh, the bee's knees, as it were, as Claude Hopkins told us. Uh, and then we had the reaction. We almost had the Tugwell Committee, but the, uh, the Tugwell Laws, but then the FTC came out. Advertising was on its back, back heel. So in order to find new sources of revenue, make itself relevant, survive this sort of self-inflicted wound, I guess you could say, we might argue. Um, advertising, sort of in the part two of the book, enters the home. Although I, I take a little bit of an issue with Wu's characterization of advertising entering the home in the 30s. Advertising had been in the home in uh, print ads and magazines before this, but we'll let it slide for now. So according to Wu, we're getting into home, and the way we're getting into home is through the radio. And that brings us to chapter seven. Chapter seven, the invention of prime time. So when chapter seven opens, we're, we, we learn about Pepsodent and we, we meet its general manager, a guy named Walter Templin. So it turns out Pepsodent was actually quite a bad product at that time. And it was almost killed by good advertising. So Bern, Bill Bernbach, perfect example of what he was talking about. Apparently it was made with a, uh, it was made, the dentifrice in it, I guess, if that's the right term, the, the, the polishing compound in it was actually, was hard enough to cut glass. So, you know, it was kind of like, you know, you know, when you go to the, the body shop and they compound your car and take like a little tiny layer of paint off to make the whole thing look at, yeah, same thing with your teeth. So people weren't loving Pepsodent and it was kind of struggling to um, survive, right? People had realized perfect example. This is the 30s. Pepsodent had been very successful in the 20s. Then the 30s comes around. Um, they're exposed as these sort of bunko artists. Um, and this guy, Walt Templin, has to do something. So he turns to radio. And specifically, he turns to a radio show called Amos and Andy, which is, and this becomes a very interesting story that Wu tells. So first thing to note here is the classic historical insight that that seem, things that seem set in stone now, things we sort of take for granted, this is the way it's always been, were once very much in flux. And that's true of things that you think, especially with regard to advertising, we've always done it this way, we're always going to do it this way. Well, no, no, we haven't. And maybe we don't have to. So where was radio before Amos and Andy came out? So radio was mostly sponsored content and it was mostly music. So a good example of that would be this thing called the La Paulina Hour, which was... Uh, the brainchild of a guy we're going to meet in a little while called William Paley. But the La Polina Hour was an orchestra, right? Um, led by the La Polina girl and, um, or associate. I'm not sure if she was the orchestra leader, but it was certainly associated with the La Polina girl. And, you know, they'd sponsor it. And then for, a, a, you know, a, a certain length of time on the radio, there would be orchestral music. Then Templin, who, you know, found himself with his back against the wall, started thinking, well, maybe there's a way I can, I can advertise on radio. Um, how would I how would I go about that? And there was a lot of debate about the role of radio in advertising. So, in 1922, 
Herbert Hoover, who would eventually, of course, become president of the United States, said, it's inconceivable that we should allow so great a possibility for service, for news, for entertainment, for education, and for vital commercial purposes to be drowned in advertising chatter. So there were a lot of people that thought advertising with radio was, was a, radio advertising was, was sort of beneath radio, and there were guys who were, who were not bothered by the sort of, I guess you call it the NPR objection, right? The public radio objection. Um, there were there were hard-headed businessmen and women who thought that selling on the radio would be a terrible idea. So, for example, a guy named Samuel Roxy Rothafel, um, who was a movie theater owner in New York, said, if you try to sell some brand of shoes or anything else over the radio, you'll have no radio audience. So people felt like radio was supposed to do something other than sell. It was this amazing opportunity for... Uh, sort of raising the consciousness of the human race. Sound familiar, internet people? Um, and then there were other people who said, well, advertising is just not going to work on there. The second you ask people to pay attention to your stupid ads, no one's going to watch. Or no one's going to watch. No one's going to listen. So there was, a big, there was a big debate about this. And nobody believed that, by the way, nobody believed that anybody would listen to a, a drama. Everybody thought, everybody thought that um, Templin was an idiot. Right, people laughed at Pepsodent's foolhardy ignorance of radio, according to Broadcasting Magazine. Looking back on the time, so when we went to CBS and tried to sell him Amos and Andy, the president, a guy named H.C. Cox, said, "Quote: Do you mean to tell me that you believe an act can go on a network at the same time every day, in the week, five days in succession?" And of course, Templin said yes. To which Cox said, "I think you should go back to Chicago. It's very plain to see you know nothing about radio. So think about that next time you know a pitch goes badly." Um, Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not you. Maybe it's them. So Templin goes ahead, despite um, like all good visionaries, he goes ahead with Amos and Andy anyway. It becomes a huge, huge success, right? Didn't do so well the first year, but then Templin decided to put some money, some another million dollars behind it, and it began to succeed widely. And it became the first appointment radio, the first appointment media, you could say. Um, they were show, they would they would play the show in movie theaters before the movie started so people could listen to Amos and Andy and then get on with the rest of their day. I mean, that's how big a deal it was. And, like we care about at Douglas and Rungi, um, Pepsi and sales doubled in a year. In a single year, their sales doubled. And, important to note, those years were 1929 and 1930, the years of the stock market crash and the beginning of the Great Depression. So, in perhaps the worst financial crisis the United States has ever faced, they doubled their sales using Amos and Andy, and they began to rehab their image. So one of the key messages they had with that advertising campaign is like, "Hey, we won't tear the we won't tear the enamel off your teeth anymore." On the back of the uh, on the back of the success of Amos and Andy, they realized they realized, okay, so now we can start doing these we can do these dramatic presentations all over the radio, and people will come and give their attention to it. And while they're giving their attention, we can advertise to them. It turns out you can advertise on the radio. You can use drama so that the president of CBS, CBS Network was uh, completely wrong. And and some of the techniques they pioneered on Amos and Andy, you know, cliffhangers, pathos, that's all still with us. That 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 gave rise to the to the techniques they they now they still use in soap operas, for instance. Um, it's a great way to uh, get people coming back again and again and again. So by the time we get to, to the end of Chapter 7, attention is now orchestrated in time. So people are, people are drawn together at the same time every day in a common, almost ritual experience, right? I mean, this is the, this is the first time anybody experienced the 
the water cooler moment where everybody listened to Amos and Andy at seven o'clock at night and they came into work and they talked about it the next day. It was a bonding experience. And so entertainment had become the sort of commercial world's version of God and country, right? So this is how Wu ends the chapter. During World War I, George Creel had envisioned welding the American people into one white-hot mass instinct with fraternity, devotion, courage, and deathless determination. Okay, a political, for a political end. Wu continues. God and country had always been special tools for achieving this, the ultimate ones being threats of eternal damnation, religion, and external force, uh, military. Wu continues. But the attention merchants had no access to such threats or need for them. They could compel us with carrots, not sticks, and they would rely on the power of entertainment to weld audiences into a saleable product. The approach ultimately would prove no less effective. On to chapter 8, The Prince, in which we meet William S. Paley. Paley started out as a rich kid um, and a very successful radio advertiser. He was the guy, his family made La Polina cigars, and he came up with the La Polina Girl and the La Polina Orchestra. And using that um, sort of pre-Amos and Andy type of sponsored content, he took La Polina cigars from 400,000 units a day to over a million units a day. People underestimated him a lot. He was a real playboy and a bon vivant. A lot of people made the mistake of thinking that he was a lightweight, and he absolutely wasn't. Um, so on the back of his success selling La Polina cigars through the La Polina Orchestra, he got his dad to buy him CBS, right? The Columbia Broadcasting System, which at that time was a very small network. Probably because their president did things like pass on Amos and Andy in the last chapter. NBC and another guy who figures large in this chapter, uh, David Sarnoff, uh, who was the owner of NBC. They were the they were the 800-pound gorilla at that time. And this chapter is really the story of the content guy who was Paley. Paley was, a, was a, a, among his many talents, he was a, a first-rate programmer. He had an eye for talent that was legendary. And the tech guy, Sarnoff. Sarnoff was much more involved in the technology of radio, right? One of the things, he, he also sold radio sets. So, you know, their models were a little bit different. Sarnoff was really more of a content is something I'm going to use to sell my technology, right? So anyway, <clears throat> let's get to this pamphlet because I think this is really interesting. It's interesting, you know, you sort of, when I was reading the book, when I started reading the book, I sort of thought, well, this is interesting. I wonder if Wu was reading history backwards and if these guys were really conscious as they were building these networks that they were, they were harvesting attention. And this quote, I think, from a CBS pamphlet really shows how very much aware they were of the power of attention and the value of attention to advertising. So let's, uh, let's check, out, check out this quote on page 98. It's from a, uh, a CBS pamphlet that was entitled, You Do What You're Told. <laughs> so the point of the pamphlet was people tend to obey human voices. And radio advertising would be more compelling than print forms because radio, according to the pamphlet, presents the living voice of authority, giving it the supple power to move people and mold them and enlist them and command them. The pamphlet continues. Here you have the advertiser's ideal, says the uh, pamphlet. The family group in its moments of relaxation awaiting your message. Continuing, nothing equal to this has ever been dreamed of by the advertising man. 
Now Wu. It is, as we shall see, one thing to sell access to minds, quite another to predict reliably the audience's frame of mind. And by dictating the moment of infiltration, radio claimed to do just that. At the time and place of CBS's choosing, the audience would be, quote, at leisure and their minds receptive, close quote. So you see, they absolutely understood the power of attention and what they were doing. Another, another fact in the chapter, I already alluded to it a little bit, is the the sort of differences in the way NBC and CBS approached gathering attention. NBC was a little bit more sort of lowest common denominator in its entertainment. And uh, what Paley did, and it was a really brilliant move, and he was, he was actually, uh, he was advised in this by Edward Bernays, right? Remember the propaganda and Edward Bernays? He was still, propaganda and Bernays were still kind of okay at this time. They're going to they're gonna totally lose favor in Chapter 9. But at this time, Bernays was still around, and he was the one who got Paley thinking in terms of the Tiffany Network, right? I don't know if you guys have heard that term or not, but the Tiffany Network dates from this time, and it was a way for CBS to position itself as distinct from NBC, as a sort of a better, higher-minded um, network. And I think... And Wu says this, and I agree with him, that Paley understood that this kind of New York Sun, all sensationalism, all the time uh, <clears throat> approach to entertainment was going to overwhelm people and, and eventually turn them off. Whereas if you if you took it in a little bit of a, a, a slower pace and mixed in some sort of high culture with the low culture, people would have a much greater tolerance for that. And in, in fact, it did work out that way. And they have a long series of excellent shows. And another thing that's great about the the this chapter, chapter eight, the prince, is that you learn you know you learn all about how Paley drove this whole you know, the Mercury Theater of the Air, which was Mercury Theater of the Air was Orson Welles' vehicle. Welles put on Shakespeare productions. He famously did the um, War of the Worlds broadcast from the Mercury Theater on the Air. And the other thing Paley did was news broadcasting. He's the guy who sponsored Edward R. Murrow. All from Paley's instinct that people are going to respond better to high high end entertainment than they will to just sort of like I said, sensationalism. There's another important part of this chapter, and that's the way Paley changed the business model of radio. Paley was the first guy to offer network um, affiliates a total program of content. So you just signed up with CBS, um, and they would give you all your content, and you would basically just broadcast that content and then get a big fat check. And that's one of the ways that he expanded the size of the network. We also meet audience measurement. So the first audience measure was this thing called the Autometer, which thought which sought to measure the attention people were paying to the radio. It was the brainchild of a guy named Robert Elder, a professor at MIT, and he first demonstrated it in 1936 uh, in New York City. And Arthur Charles Nielsen saw it. He was there at the presentation. And he'd already, he was already an established market research guy, uh, and he had a reputation at that time for trying to get human, human interference out of data. He wasn't interested in hearing what people say. He was interested in watching what they do. And in this way, he was a father of um, the sort of big data approach. Nielsen would have loved the big data approach, and he would have been a, a huge advocate of um, the kinds of things I'm also an advocate of, uh, of doing on the Internet, which is uh, more about watching people like a biologist rather than um, asking them questions like a reporter. Anyway, um, so... 
Elder demonstrates this thing in 1936, and by 1947, Nielsen's bought Elder out, and he is beginning to introduce uh, radio ratings. Uh, Elder, it's interesting to note, didn't approve of this. He didn't like, as a, as a probably as a good scientist would, he had problems with the data, the way the data was used, and, and it seems like, Wu doesn't go into this too much, but if I had to guess, I'd say Elder probably thought people were treating the data fairly simplistically, kind of like they, they, they do now. Um, and uh, they needed to treat it with a little more nuance. Um, as the chapter closes, we jump to newscasting. We meet up with Edward R. Morrow, and he's in Europe um, uh, working for CBS and, and doing uh, the amazing job he did during the Blitz in London, which is well worth, which is well worth a read. So, on to chapter 9. Total Attention Control, or The Madness of Crowds. This chapter is about Nazi Germany, uh, mostly. And Wu uses it to underline his point about the link between attention and what we pay attention to and freedom. And he paints a very stark and uh, troubling picture. One of the things that leapt out to me about this chapter, too, is it's an interesting study on how attention harvesting is done cross-culturally. So looking at Germany in the 30s is an interesting contrast to the USA. You know, like Creel, as we saw in the last chapter, the U.S. is using entertainment to get people's attention. In continental Europe, they use force. And this another way to understand this chapter, too, is it's telling the tale of the death of propaganda as a legitimate enterprise. After this, propaganda really went dark. People don't admit that they're engaged in propaganda, whereas before, you know, Edward Bernays called the, his book on corporate public relations propaganda, and nobody saw it as a value-laden statement. But after, after uh, the Second World War, it would become uh, verboten. Couldn't talk about being engaged in propaganda. It became a pejorative. So the chapter opens on this kind of classic totalitarian moment where there's a simulcast, a radio simulcast happening, and it's in Germany, it's during the Nazi regime, and people are, are either listening to it at home, watched by a special kind of radio police that the Nazis had brought into, um, into being, or heard it into churches, other sort of, uh, other sort of uh, auditorium forums, or listening on loudspeakers that are being played uh, throughout the... Uh, throughout the country. So that classic sort of, we laugh at it now, right? It's a, it's kind of a cliche of the, of the loudspeakers, but um, this was a real thing and it really happened. And Wu makes the point that this is their way of forging what, doing exactly what the Creel Committee wanted to do. They want to forge one public opinion. They want to, they want to galvanize the country into this white hot war will and destroy the spirit of rebellion. Now, this was all very self-conscious on the Nazis' part. Hitler understood propaganda, and Hitler understood advertising. He had actually been a freelance art director in Vienna, which um, I actually hadn't been aware of till I read this book. I, I knew he'd been, I knew, of course, he'd gone to art school, but I didn't realize he'd actually worked on uh, advertising campaigns. Uh, so... So he had a strong, instinctive, and possibly a professional, I don't really know, Wu doesn't go into detail on this, and I don't know enough about Hitler's life to be able to say, but, um, so he at least had a casual interaction with advertising, and possibly he, you know, possibly he had um, received some training in it. Don't know. Um, but he had a strong, instinctive understanding of the sort of behaviorist principles that were so loved by Stan Renser and uh, Dr. Watson there at J. Walter Thompson. And 
as a way to what they were doing with the with the radio police and and sort of forced radio listening was they were making people pay attention to uh, so that they could implement the stimulus and also take advantage of joint attention, right? Um, and then Wu kind of goes into this discussion about the effect of joint attention is not just a Nazi or a German phenomenon. This he cites William Jennings Bryan's. Um, very famous speech, the Cross of Gold speech, and if you don't know about the Cross of Gold speech, you should you should definitely check it out. It's very interesting for a bunch of different reasons. Um, but here's a quote from the Washington Post about the crowd's response, the American crowd's response to uh, William Jennings Bryan's speech. Words cannot impart the strange and curious magnetism which filled the atmosphere. Bedlam broke loose. Delirium reigned supreme. In the spoken word of the order, thousands of men had heard the unexpressed sentiments and hopes of their own inmost souls. The greatest mass of humanity threw forth the fiery lava of its enthusiasm like Vesuvius in eruption. The stamping of the feet, uh, the stamping of the feet was as the roll of thunder among the echoing Alps, and the hurricane of sound almost caused the steel girders of the roof to tremble with its perceptible volume. Every man in the vast audience climbed upon his chair and, infected by the cyclonic frenzy of the moment, seemed absolutely oblivious to what he did or what he said. The most lunatical excitement was shown by the incident of one woman who, standing upon a chair, shouted like a savage and danced like a savage. There's this idea of being caught up, right, of being taken out of your rational self and of losing control. Right, the madness of crowds, losing control of yourself, losing control of your individuality when we pay attention in a group, um, and it turns out that there's actually uh, Wu cites some studies that I'll take a look at uh, and hopefully link to in the show notes, where in the last decade or so he says there have been some studies that have shown that people pay attention differently and are actually more effective at problem solving when they pay attention together. So when we're all paying attention to the same thing, we pay attention uh, differently than we do when we're alone, and it makes us better at certain things. And you can sort of think of, you know, from a sort of back-of-the-envelope evolutionary biology perspective, that would make some sense, right? If we are all trying to, you know, the baby follows the parent's gaze towards either a threat or food or something that they need to pay attention to, so you learn it early on. You're not born with it, evidently. And then, you know, back on the savannah, when we're all trying to track down that wildebeest, it makes attention, it, it would, groups of people that were able to work better when they paid attention together would have gotten an evolutionary advantage. And so potentially this is a very old um, feature of human psychology. So uh, then Wu gets into a, that's sort of a, a discussion, very interesting discussion of propaganda choice, freedom and information. And he doesn't say it, but he's sort of talking about the Overton window and the relationship between what we pay attention to, like you said, what we pay attention to, and even bigger than what we pay attention to, what we know intellectually is our range of choices, right? Because of that's, of course, the Overton window. So he goes in with chocolate or vanilla ice cream. You know, you, you, you may feel like you have plenty of freedom of choice if you can decide whether or not you want chocolate or vanilla ice cream, but maybe, you know, uh, you don't know the full range of ice cream that's available. And so if you don't know the full range of ice cream that's available, are you really free to choose? Uh, or is your freedom of choice meaningful? And it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting example because while we might imagine, you know, choosing between ice cream 
that's chocolate or ice cream that's vanilla is going to take care of, say, I don't know, 40% of everybody who cares about ice cream. Even if you knew about all the ice cream flavors in the world, there's a large proportion of people, like myself, who might choose vanilla. And there's a large proportion of people, like, say, my brother, who might choose chocolate. So how, so, so the question arises, how, how much does restricting your choice really impact your freedom? You still have some choice. Um, but there's also something that feels greasy when you don't know uh, about all the choices that are available to you. There's something that feels a little restrictive about that. And if people purposely restrict, restrict your knowledge about what your possible range of choices are, then that starts to feel, well, a little bit unfair and probably wrong, right? So, and then we, then while Wu doesn't get into this, there's also a discussion of the Overton window, or at least an implication. There's also, while Wu doesn't get into this, he also sort of implies a discussion about the Overton window, which, you know, for those of you that don't know about the Overton window, is about um, what's considered an acceptable view to express. And there's been a lot of talk now about media, the alternative media sort of expanding the Overton window or shifting the Overton window. And this is this goes directly to the idea of propaganda, because if you buy into the idea that our sort of legacy news media, to borrow a phrase, um, is engaged in a kind of propaganda where they're doing this restriction of choices and then presenting people with a certain very narrow group of choices, say, of political opinions that are considered acceptable, then they're they're kind of restricting the, the criticism from the alternative media would be, well, you're actually restricting our choice in a greasy, unethical way because there's lots of there's lots of opinions out there that we could have that are actually, you know, not awful. And let's have a discussion about those. So it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting section about, um, it's a very interesting section of Wu's book. It's well worth the read and it's well worth a think about what you're reading because this is, yeah, this is the very crux of the book. We are what we pay attention to. And if your attention is being attracted and your choices are being sort of curated, how much are you, how much of that are you actually comfortable with? And, and how much of that are you willing to put up with before it feels like, how much of that are you willing to put up with before that feels illegitimate and something you want to sort of fight against? So it's very interesting. It's, it, things are starting to come together here in the middle of the book. Um, and of course, we're seeing some very interesting, very interesting sort of death of propaganda as a, as a legitimate thing you can, you can engage in, right? Admittedly engage in. So... As we close the chapter, we've we've come to the end of the of the um, Nazi regime, and and with the revulsion at the project of the at the Nazi project, the legitimacy of propaganda has shut down, and so sort of state sponsored attention gathering and state sponsored attention direction has kind of become uncomfortable and icky. And Wu's point is at the end of the chapter that really all we're left with is commercial attention gathering and commercial attention direction or attention curation. And then he sort of ends it with a wise, wise ass remark. What possibly could go wrong? So what could possibly go wrong with propaganda's commercial cousin advertising? Well, in chapter 10, peak attention, American style, Wu chronicles the, the sort of rise and the beginning of the fall of television. And um, we see the maturation of attention gathering from you know, the old days of Ben Day back in New York City getting people's eyes from time to time on print, right? And then 
the Parisian posters getting people's eyes a little less voluntarily on print by sort of engaging in this kind of uh, luring effect that they, they were able to do with posters, to radio, where we got people to give us their ears, and then TV, where we got people to give us their eyes and their ears. The first thing that leapt out to me in this chapter was the unbelievably quick rise of television. So in the United States, in 1950, 9% of households had televisions. And that number jumped by 1956 to 72%, which is amazing. I, I can't, I don't think even the smartphone caught on that quickly. So that was this, this massive change in the way Americans paid attention. And ever after, TV has been the attention magnet to beat. And I think, of course, now we're, started getting into, we're starting to get into, uh, the book's starting to get into things that we might remember, right, within, the, within a, a single human lifetime. So I think we can all, you know, look at your lived experience. And I think probably agree with that. Certainly somebody like a Gen Xer like me would certainly agree with that. Um, and I would think probably millennials and uh, on down the line might agree with that as well. So then Wu gets into the, Wu gets into, we, we run back into our old friends NBC and CBS, and we, we look at the difference between Sarnoff at NBC, who was very content lazy, sort of uh, much more about the channel itself and the technical uh, aspects of the channel, and CBS, where of course William Paley was doing a wonderful job with uh, programming, and and CBS was much more con content stringent. And Wu kind of plays the two off against each other by telling the tale of their their news operations. So um, NBC had the Camel News Caravan, uh, which was uh, fronted by John Cameron Swayze, who is not the father of Patrick Swayze, by the way. He's his sixth cousin once removed. I checked it out on Wikipedia. And the Camel News Caravan was really not a news show. It was really... Swayze just got up there and read news items. There was no pretense of being a real journalist, according to Wu. In fact, um, Camel News Caravan was sponsored by Camel Cigarettes, spiked um, the first Reader's Digest report on uh, the link between smoking and cancer. So Reader's Digest had broken the story, and, of course, Camel News Caravan, you know, what Camel wanted, Camel got, and so there was no discussion of that. Contrast that with See It Now, um, which was the CBS news program, and it was fronted by Edward R. Murrow, who we all remember from the Second World War, uh, Murrow was a newsman's newsman, and is considered still to this day to be one of the great American newsmen. And um, as a sort of contrast between the Camel News Caravan and See It Now, See It Now was the program that broke tail gunner Joe McCarthy of McCarthyism fame. And that's a whole other story, but See It Now was a, a true news program. And so we sort of see this, this story of the struggle between CBS and NBC. They're struggling for attention, and Wu kind of gets into the banality of it all by gets it by quoting David Halverson, uh, another historian on this this time. Never had there been a competition so fierce with weapons so inane. Uh, and by the by, we get to peak attention um, on the Ed Sullivan Show with an eighty-two point six percent share when the King Elvis Presley first appears on TV. This is what a commentator said about it at the time. It was as if the whole nation had gathered at a gigantic three-ring circus. Those who watched the Bicycle Act believed their experience was different from that of those who watched the Gorillas or the Flame Eater, but everyone was at the circus. What was missing was the exaltation of the rally, the thrill of losing oneself in the common experience, William Jennings Bryan. 
for all we watched from our separate living rooms. It was as if we sat in isolation booths, unable to exchange any responses about what we were all going through together. Everybody was engaged in the same act at the same time, but we were doing it alone. What a bizarre situation. So you can see this is very interesting sort of deal that's going on in America at the time. This is, this is again, we was doing a brilliant job of keeping advertising and attention gathering at the front and center of American cultural history. This was the beginning of the, of the sort of great suburbanization of America. This was people being locked in their own homes, just all watching TV. So this is the problem with advertising. If we understand advertising as commercial propaganda, it's sort of driven a wedge between all of us in a way that now nobody is saying that the Nazis had anything going for them at all. But we've lost our common experience. We've lost the common joy that, say, the people who were watching William Jennings Bryan give his Cross of Gold speech felt. There's that, that, that desire to weld people into one society, into a group of people with common experiences that may lead to common understandings of reality and common... Uh, derivations from our understanding of reality, things like ethics, all that sort of commonality is beginning to be driven apart, we can see. It's legitimate to ask yourself if the new attention merchants of the sort of industrial age who've replaced the attention merchants of the earlier age, uh, say religious governmental authorities, you know, what's the quality of the experiences they're offering? Is it better or worse? Have we gained or lost? I think that's a that's a question that it's, it's uh, perfectly, perfectly legitimate to ask yourself. Okay, let's go on to chapter 11, which will be quick, I think. Chapter 11 uh, is entitled Prelude to an Attentional Revolt. And here we find ourselves back at the familiar point by now in this book where advertising and attention harvesting, having made massive inroads into human consciousness, um, is revolted against. And this revolt starts a lot like the old revolt. There's a piece of technology and there's a muckraker like Chasen Schlink and a book. So, What's the piece of technology? The piece of technology is ta-da, the remote control. The remote control is invented, I guess, or commercialized by a guy named Commander, Commander E.F. McDonald, um, who was a sort of a Ted Turner figure, I guess, of the day. He was a big adventurer. And uh, in the 50s, he uh, sort of capitalized on the growing discontent among television viewers that they had to get up and change the channel. Um, in other words an attempt by people to reclaim their control over their attention, he capitalized on this by coming out with this thing called the Flashmatic. Now, the Flashmatic was a, was a TV system at the time. It was a TV and a remote control. Um, and it helped people with what I like to call their peanut problem, which I'm naming after this thing that Orson Welles came up with. He said, I hate TV as much as I hate peanuts, uh, but I can't stop eating peanuts, which I think is the way a lot of people feel about TV, especially TV now. Um, and then, along with the remote control, came an author, just like uh, Chase and Schlink, a guy named Vance Packard, and he wrote a book called The Hidden Persuaders. And here is the aim of The, the Hidden Persuaders. This is, uh, this is Vance writing in his book. To explore a strange and rather exotic new area of American life, the large-scale efforts being made, often with impressive success, to channel our unthinking habits, our purchasing decisions, and our thought processes by use of insights gleaned from psychiatry and the social sciences. Typically, these efforts take place beneath our level of awareness, so that the appeals which move us are often, in a sense, hidden. 
The result is that many of us are being influenced and manipulated far more than we realize in the patterns of our everyday lives. So there we are. It's totally explicit. People want their attention back. He went after Dichter, that Austrian psychiatrist who had been such a big part of the success of advertising in the 40s and 50s. And um, so did Betty Friedan. Uh, so this is how this is how Betty Friedan, who of course wrote The Feminine Mystique, um, she said that the perpetuation of housewifery, I think that's how you pronounce that, the growth of the feminine mystique makes sense and dollars when one realizes that women are the chief customers of American business. Same insight as David Ogilvy. Somehow, somewhere, someone must have figured out, David Ogilvy, that women buy more things if they are kept in the underused, nameless, yearning, energy-get-to-get-rid-of state of being housewives. Interesting. So there's this growing resentment, just like there was in the 30s, against the success of attention gathering. People were saying, like they say to the annoying child who got your attention once but keeps repeating the same trick over and over again, hey, stop it. It's not funny anymore. Then, of course, the game show scandals broke. So game shows, as you remember from the last chapter, had become these this wildly successful attention gathering um, programming on television, and then they were uh, exposed as shams. They, they were not, there was not a genuine game going on. It was drama ginned up for the purposes of, of gathering attention. And shows like Dotto and 21, and of course the $64,000 question all got caught up in that. And it all coalesced into this feeling that was put into words by Walter Lippmann um, in 1959. So here's a quote from Lippmann. Television has been caught perpetuating a fraud which is so gigantic that it calls into question the foundations of the industry. There has been, in fact, an enormous conspiracy to deceive the public in order to sell profitable advertising to the sponsors. It involves not this individual or that, but the industry as a whole. There is something radically wrong with the fundamental national policy under which television operates. There is no competition in television except among competitors trying to sell the attention of their audiences for profit. As a result, while television is supposed to be free, it has, in fact, become the creature, the servant, indeed the prostitute, of merchandising. So then we, that's where we find ourselves in 1959. So as we sort of enter the 60s, which we'll get into in the next chapter, The Great Refusal, there's this great disenchantment with advertising again. Now, on to chapter 12, which is entitled The Great Refusal. This is a fascinating chapter. So... As we see the beginning of the Great Refusal, right, in Chapter 11, people are starting to want their attention back. Suddenly, there appears on the scene a new attention merchant, a new gatherer of attention. I guess you, couldn't call, I guess you could call them not necessarily attention merchants, but attention liberators. Who are the attention liberators? Well, the chapter opens with a lunch between uh, Tim Leary of Tune In, Turn On, and Drop Out fame and Marshall McLuhan who is a little less famous than Leary. McLuhan was a Canadian academic, and he sort of, he's the guy that's behind the phrase, the medium is the message. He was a big media scholar back in the day. And the two of these guys met at the Oak Room at the Plaza Hotel in New York City, which I find richly ironic, since these guys were supposedly so countercultural, and it's hard to imagine a more, it's hard to imagine a more establishment medium, Mr. McLuhan, uh, to meet than the Oak Room in the Plaza Hotel, which used to have a damn good burger, by the way. Um, anyway, so they get together at this meeting. Uh, they're talking, Leary sort of laying out his uh, ideas to McLuhan. McLuhan proposes he get a, a headline or a tagline. 
and so was born the famous tune-in, turn-on, drop-out line. And this was part of this sort of giant project that was spearheaded, well, given voice by uh, Herbert Marcuse, who was one of the Frankfurt School. Um, cultural Marxist, if you're an uh, alternative media guy. Um, but Marcuse was all about, I think Marcuse would say, and to be fair to Marcuse, right, he would, if that's how you pronounce his name, I hope that's how you pronounce his name, and I'm not exposing myself as an as a, as a uncultured halfwit, but this is what, uh, this is sort of the, the summation of the Marcusean uh, project. So this is Michael Hollingshead, um, quoted by Wu, who was a physician, <clears throat> a British physician, who was part of this movement. So Hollingshead said, we felt satisfied that our goal was every man's, capitalized, every man's, a project of every man's private ambition. We sought for that unitary state of divine harmony, an existence in which only the sense of wonder remains and all fear is gone. Religious ecstasy, right? That's what these guys, this is a really good, I think, I don't know a ton about Marcusa, but I think Marcusa would, would resist the idea that it was a religious movement, but this should remind you of a kind of religious ecstasy. This is what people who... Uh, for instance, have an experience of grace report, right? I'm, I'm, I'm overjoyed. I feel nothing but a deep peace. There's no anxiety. Yeah, Leary was explicit. People had to turn back to the religious search. And the reason Leary, that's the reason Leary got into LSD. Now that's sort of been confused in the intervening years. And, you know, the electric Kool-Aid acid test, books like that, by Tom, a great book by Tom Wolfe, which you should read if you haven't. Um, it kind of got mixed up in this hedonism and sort of got, it, it all got kind of twisted around. But when you, when you look at the ideas of Leary's ideas as they're presented by Tim Wu in this book, um, it's pretty clear that Leary was basically making the case for returning attention to the religious function, right? Um, and, uh, and he knew that that was going to be a struggle. So here's what Leary said. We're going to try to get, we're going to get, try to get people's attention back from merchandising, and this is what's going to happen. The directors of the TV studio do not want you to live a religious life, right? Explicit. Religious life. They will apply every pressure, including prison, to keep you in their game. Your own mind, which has been corrupted and neurologically damaged by years of education in fake prop TV studio games, will also keep you trapped in the game. So there they were. These guys knew that they were fighting TV, and they knew they were fighting the commercialized, I guess, they knew they were fighting the attention merchants. These guys were per perhaps, we could call them the attention revolutionaries or the attention, the attention uh, liberators, maybe. Liberators a little bit value-based, a little bit value-laden, rather. Um, I wouldn't want to call them attention liberators because personally, I just full disclosure, I, I find uh, the baby boomer um, project and this Marcusey project just utterly feckless and and laughable. It's a risible idea that human beings should live without anxiety. Um, I enjoy anxiety. I don't know about the rest of you guys, but I think that uh, you need that little pop, don't you? Huh? Keep things interesting? That's what I find. So while Leary and Marcusa and um, McLuhan, while Leary, Marcusa, McLuhan, and the sort of attention liberationists were trying to get people's attention back from the attention merchants. Um, along comes Pepsi and a guy named Alan Potash. I'm hoping, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Looks like Potash. Probably Potash. 
they, as advertising is so good at, they pick up on what's going on with young people and potash especially um, is sort of put forward as a great example of how this cultural movement was picked up on and commercialized by the attention merchants. The, the, and I think the great thing, that's one of the great things about advertising is still going on today. Advertising has the ability to do this, you know, I know you are, but what am I kind of mirror effect. So whatever's going on in the society, they advertising is able to sort of incorporate, turn into a commercial idiom and then feed back out into the culture uh, in a way that makes it very difficult for people to sort of overthrow um, overthrow these attention merchants. I mean, it's a classic example. It's just like that that scene in uh, The Life of Brian where he's yelling, you're all individuals, and everybody yells back, we're all individuals, right? Very, uh, very frustrating. Anyhow, so uh, on we go. A uh, quick story about Alan Potash. Pepsi actually started life as a, as called Bra something called Brad's Drink, which actually is pretty awesome. Um, Brad's Drink. I would drink a thing called Brad's Drink. And it was a, it was a, um, Brad's drink was sort of a, uh, uh, inexpensive soft drink. And that, and I don't know if you guys are fans of old time radio. I was an old time radio dork as a kid. And, uh, they had this, you know, Pepsi Cola hits the spot, 12 full ounces. That's a lot. That's a, that's, Wu refers to that, um, in his book. And that's actually a value statement, right? Because it's a statement about value because Coke was, that was, um, I think sold in six ounce bottles, according to Wu at the time. So double the double the volume um, and they sort of they had constantly been fighting coke and barely were alive and then potash had this idea wait no we're gonna go and we're gonna we, something different is happening with kids these days and so we're gonna tie into this like advertising does and we are going to sort of present this vision this Marcusean vision of I have to be careful about that because I don't know much about Marcusa so Full disclosure, I never read any Marcuse, so so don't accuse me of that. Lying about my intellectual bona fides. Anyway, um, they sort of show this Halcyon world, sort of like the Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, which I did read, um, of young people just sort of enjoying this anxiety-free, beautiful life. And it became the fill-in-the-blank kids Pepsi generation. And it was a huge success. It's a great example of how advertising is able to take even a, an anti-advertising cultural movement, incorporate it into advertising, and then feed it back out in an effective way. Uh, and it's really that's really pretty, really pretty amazing, frankly. I mean, I, I'm I'm in awe of that. It's a it's a very interesting dynamic, and uh, I don't think we've seen the last of it. So anyway, Wu Wu goes on after having sort of showed Pepsi as an example of how. Um, uh, the attention merchants kind of took the attention liberationists' uh, message and turned it into a commercially viable TV commercial, commercially viable TV commercial, and turned it into an effective marketing campaign. Then we kind of asked, well, why did the revolution fail? And he, and I think this is I think this is absolutely right. The reason he says the main reason that the Leary's revolution failed was not because it was an obnoxious message. In fact, it was a very well-received message, and a lot of people, it was easy to understand uh, and very attractive. It was that people kept watching TV. So this is what, and this is what uh, Wu says. Of course, to succeed at selling a new snake oil, albeit one with a spiritual flavor, advertisers would still need one thing, access to the public mind. 
that they would have it points to the main reason why the hope for attentional revolution of the 60s and 70s ultimately failed. It was nothing to do with the message, which was in fact powerfully delivered and readily embraced. Rather, the failure was owing to one often unremarked fact. Over the 1960s and 1970s, most people simply did not stop watching television. So why was that? In a word, program. So then two things started to happen, right? First of all, we get into a discussion about Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and public television and public radio as an, as an attempt to... He's, Wu seems to be positioning it as sort of like a Lyrian... A sort of nod to the to the Leary the Learys and the Marcuses, like here's a non-commercial attention gathering thing that can sort of live side by side with you in your anxiety-free wonder world, right? That's public television. That's public radio. So then Wu gets into the story of this guy named Fred Silverman, who got hired by CBS in the '60s when he was 25 years old as a programmer, and Silverman was part of this revolution at CB at CBS where they got rid of the Ed Sullivan show and they got rid of, and, and TV in general got rid of things like the Ed, the uh, you know, Beverly Hillbillies and all that fish out of water drama and all that stuff. And they came back with, under Silverman's leadership, the Mary Tyler Moore show about an unmarried woman you know, pursuing a career. Um, all in the family, of course, needs no introduction or explanation from a guy like me, and MASH, which, you know, um, another amazing, amazing drama that, that was a huge departure from what the kind of, the kind of programming that, they, that the networks had been engaged in up to then. Um, and then ad agencies changed too. They, Wu brings up the example of uh, Wells, Rich, and Green, which he calls the best and clearest exemplar of these hip new revolutionary agencies with young staffs that sort of were able to talk to the kids, much like much like digital agencies uh, a few years ago. There was this massive change in the way people were communicating, massive change in culture, and suddenly, if you knew how to survive or knew how to exist and communicate in that idiom, there was a market for your talents. Well, and of course, this was an old trick, right? Let's cast our minds back to Edward Bernays and the uh, Torches of Freedom. Which I got wrong, actually, in the last podcast. It was not, uh, I think I said it was Parliament. You said it was Newport. But it wasn't Parliament. Newport! It was Virginia Slim's campaign. They dusted off the old Torches of Freedom thing, Leo Burnett did, and they came out with, you've come a long way, baby. So again, you know, advertising very successfully sort of observed what was going on in the culture, even though it was openly hostile to advertising and was able to turn it around and um, make it an, an effective marketing message for their clients, which uh, whether you like that or not, whether you think that was a great thing or not, um, was a pretty amazing achievement. So to sum up the chapter, advertising came under this massive cultural assault in the 60s and 70s from the attention liberationists, Leary, Marcusa, et al., and was able to successfully adapt itself. As the medium it worked in, television, uh, adapted itself to deal with the changing cultural situation. And to serve all that, there arose a new kind of agency that did a new kind of work. In an old way, right? Which is the Newport campaign, you know, translated to Virginia Slims. Uh, this chapter is a real monument to the resilience of advertising, and I think an indictment, and yet another indictment, sorry, Andrew Essex, of Essex's thesis that is the end of advertising. Looking back on chapter 12, it is almost certainly not the end of advertising. Advertising has seen off many more sophisticated challenges to its existence. 
than the one it faces today. Okay, study haulers, let's knock out the last chapter. It's a short one, but it's pretty powerful. It's uh, entitled, Coda to an Attentional Revolution. And chapter 13 is about computerization and how that computerization led directly to fragmentation. So we do as we always start as we often do with Wu with a with a new technology. And in this case, it's a computer program called Prism, like the light refracting crystal, uh, with a Z where the S ought to go. So it's ownable. Um, it was written by a guy named Jonathan Robin. Robin was a child of the 50s and 60s, and he came out with Prism in 78. And what he basically did was he took census data and he combined it with zip code data so you could look at all these characteristics and then you could you could put them in an actual location and he came up with cool names for all these different demographics he was able to pull out of that juxtaposition of data like money and brains and pools and patios and young influentials so this was the beginning of that account planner dynamic where you know you go in for a briefing and they tell you that you know Whizbangs and gizmos are the guys that you're talking to. And they give you a long list of these people's characteristics. Well, Robin was the first guy to do this. And the, the insight behind all this, and the insight that's driven a lot of our lives as advertisers, advertising people ever since, is that people aren't all the same. And we can find people, and if we can find them, we can refine our message so that it's motivating to them. So Wu brings up the case of Diet Coke. Diet Coke apparently and the tab campaign was the first time Prism was ever used to actually sell a product and it was very successful. Coke knew that six types of people drank tab and so what they did was they advert and they knew where those people were so what they did was they advertised tab to those people in those locations and it worked great and basically what it proved was you could say different things to different people and win them all. So whereas before, to take the Pepsi an example with Amos and Andy, you were probably saying the same thing, we're not going to tear the enamel off your teeth, haha, to uh, the entire nation. Now you're saying different things to different people, and you're winning them all. Now, Wu doesn't think this is a good thing. Um, so I'm just going to read you a quick quote from Wu. So he'll, so just, because he's kind of mournful about this. I, I'm going to take a little bit more of a neutral stance, because this is a podcast about advertising, not about ethics. But... Let's just, uh, let's just listen to this quote. Born of a wish for greater empathy and greater understanding of people from all backgrounds, the new system industrialized the project of finding out as much as possible about each and every one of us, not out of regard for anyone's dignity, but so as to know precisely what would catch our attention and make us want things that we never knew we wanted. So, ambiguous to negative, I think, is Wu's attitude in this chapter. Um, and I feel like I should call that out to be fair to Wu. So, computerization drove this fragmentation of messaging, and the fragmentation was, of course, echoed by the rest of the culture. So, TV picks up on this insight and begins serving content through the relatively new cable system to smaller slices of America. So, teenagers got MTV. Sports nuts got ESPN, um, etc., etc., and they were using this better audience tech to find people that were interested in their product, which contained a different mix of entertainment than could be found in sort of the general broadcast media, right? Simple insight today looks absolutely commonplace, but as I think I said earlier, things that seem commonplace and obvious to us now were once not at all obvious or commonplace. 
And this is a and, and especially at this time as you know American advertising that that you and I live in was was beginning to take the shape that it takes today. And then of course the VCR was coming out, um, and that combined with cable and remote controls meant that ads were more avoidable than ever. And as if poor Andrew Essex has not suffered enough, um, Wu brings up this quick part of the chapter where he talks about how there was a rise and there was a, suddenly this call for zap-proof advertising, to use the New York Times term. And that was basically what Essex was talking about, content that was just so good that people couldn't avoid it. Um, and you can judge for yourself how successful that's been. Uh, my opinion is that it hasn't been all that successful and advertising has got to be advertising at the end of the day. It's not the same as content. Um, given a choice between real content and fake advertising content, people are going to choose the real content every single time. People are not stupid. And so Essex kind of uh, ends the chapter on a, on a little bit of a blue note, in keeping with his earlier quote. This is ultimately where the great refusal had led. Not to a bang, but a whimper. Faced with a new abundance of choice and a frictionless system of choosing, we individuals, in our natural weak-mindedness, could not resist frittering away our attention, which once had been harvested from us so ceremoniously. And the choices would continue to proliferate. As they did, and the attention merchant's work grew more challenging, the strategies for getting the job done would grow only more various and desperate. So it's uh, kind of a tough verdict at this point on advertising. I mean, Wu clearly is not a fan of advertising. I don't think that makes his account of advertising any less interesting or compelling or impressive, but uh, it's just something to note as you consider uh, the book and the author's perspective on the material. And with that, we've come to the end of our third study hall. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found there was something worth listening to in it, and uh, we'll see you next time. Congratulations, you just got out of study hall. I want to thank Henry Veloso for the music and say sorry about the editing. Study Hall is sponsored by Douglas and Monk, advertising and marketing consultants. See you next time.